and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Cambridge. Hi, Mimi. Hi. This month, we're talking about Crossing Delancey, a film that's new to us as we honor the memory of Joan Micklin Silver, the director who recently died. And for our second segment, we're talking about the recent conspiracy theory exposed by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene that California forest fires were started by space lasers financed by the Rothschilds. There's a lot to unpack in both of these, so I am excited to, to dig in. Um, so Hava, do you want to take us into Crossing Delancey? Sure. Film director Joan Micklin Silver has recently died at the age of 85. So to mark the passing of this path-breaking female and Jewish director, we wanted to watch and discuss her best-known film, Crossing Delancey, which came out in 1988. The movie stars Amy Irving as Izzy, a Jewish woman in her early 30s who lives in uptown Manhattan and works in an independent bookstore and mingles in rarefied literary circles. And it also stars Peter Riegert as Sam, who sells pickles on the Lower East Side in the same neighborhood where Izzy's grandmother lives. It's a classic clash of worlds romantic comedy, but with a heavily Jewish flavor. I had never seen this movie and I was really charmed. What did you ladies think? I also really loved it. Um... I have to admit, I watched this movie while sort of in the haze, recovering from my second dose of the COVID vaccine. And I don't know if some Congratulations. of you Congratulations. Yes, I am something like immune. Um, but the second dose can make people just pretty much feel like they have the flu. So I took it easy and planned the movie day. Um, and this was just precisely the charming film that I needed with characters who you could easily fall in love with and a plot that's not too complicated. You know, you, you can follow this. It's a romantic comedy trope, but with just like a very comfy Jewish feel. What about you, Tamar? So I would say that I liked it, but I also, I had heard a lot about it and I was expecting something really different I just like didn't I it surprised me in a lot of ways and I was like this is nice but mm, I I wasn't like I, I didn't look at this and think like oh I totally understand why people are still talking about this as like such an amazing Jewish film like 30 plus years later like I am confused as to why people think this is like so awesome. So I'm curious what you all thought. Well, I think part of the low key nature of the Jewishness is actually what makes it so notable, which is that like this isn't actually a movie where anybody's wrestling with their Jewish identity in a really explicit way. This isn't about like conflicts between the two people's level of observance and practice. This isn't about how they conceive of their Jewishness in a really clear way. And, you know, can the can the like guy who goes to shul every morning, like possibly go out with the person who has non-kosher champagne in her fridge, both of which are facts about these characters and nobody like mentions those things about them really as a potential source of conflict. It's more just that like Jewish culture is the water they swim in and keeping that as an ambient fact instead of a point of conflict in and of itself 
means that like the Jewishness is kind of normal and assumed um, in a way that's unusual for for like for a movie for a movie to take the Jewishness of its characters for granted is that's what's notable about it to me. I do agree, though, Tamar, that there was something um, I think there was some some substance or like big questions or something a little bit meaty, maybe that was missing from this film, which if you view it as here's a romantic comedy, that's okay. But we had read a piece by Hadley Freeman in The Guardian that posits uh, Joan Micklin Silver's films as sort of an antidote or a different taste than Woody Allen's pieces, especially um, Annie Hall. And it just doesn't do the same things that Annie Hall does. It doesn't give you tough questions in a comedic setting. It's a romantic comedy in a Jewish setting. I don't know. Does that ring true? So on the one hand, I was like, oh, like there's a guy here who goes to shul every day. That is like super interesting because he doesn't otherwise come across as orthodox. So like, are we to take from this that this is a non-orthodox person who goes to shul every day? Like, are there any other movies in which that person exists? Like, that's that's kind of awesome. On the other hand, um, I was like, this... I was very interested in that, but, like, no one in the movie is interested in that. Like, the movie thinks that it's a very... Uh, the, the movie felt to me like a very, like, Disneyland version of the Lower East Side. Like, I, it just felt very kind of cutesy in a way that, like, I don't know. Maybe that that is re very realistic to the time, but... It felt to me not realistic and a little bit cringy. Like, it's so interesting to read um, articles about the Bubby character where I was just like, I found that so cringy and, like, not funny. And, I mean, I think that it's, like, a lot of Jewish, like, theater kind of stereotypes, I think, were born out of that characterization. But... I was like, I don't like this. And I don't think it's cute. Like then, so the the whole conceit of like, there's a woman and her bubby hires a matchmaker to set her up with someone. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I've seen a lot of things that are clear, that I now see to be clearly drawing on this. But having not seen this first, having seen this after other, those things, I was like, Ugh, this is dumb. And like, I don't know. It's also just like hard to put myself in the headspace of a place where people would like use a matchmaker in a like serious way and not be like from people. I don't know. I just like found myself like not really able to like go with it with a lot of the film. And I also was like, I found the uh, pretentious writer who she is like kind of like, is she or isn't she going to end up with this pretentious writer? I was like, I can't handle this guy. Like I wanted to punch him in the face the whole time, which is definitely the point. But I was like aggressively skeeved out by him. <laughs> OK, so there's so much in what you just said. So 
Uh, I agree with you that um, the just to take the last thing first, I agree with you that that guy is super skeevy. So just for for those who haven't seen the movie, um, Izzy works in this bookstore and is working on planning a a live reading with this super pretentious uh, Dutch like snooty face of a literary writer. And she's clearly romantically interested in him and he's sending her mixed signals and he's like the spoiler love triangle third person in the movie. And you both want to smack him and shake her the entire time for being even remotely interested in this terrible dude, which I think is not atypical in a romantic comedy setting. I think that the, the spoiler love triangle guy who's clearly wrong for you is, you know, holds no appeal for the audience per se. So when it comes to the... Bubby character, it's so interesting to me that you found her to be a turnoff because my feeling about the Bubby character who lives on the Lower East Side and who Izzy goes to see on a very regular basis, right? It's clearly part of her regular routine to go spend time with her Bubby. I thought she was fantastic because I thought she was the comic relief, but not the butt of the joke, which is unusual for like a fairly stereotypical Jewish mother, grandmother character. But she is clearly like very smart, like she thinks what she thinks and her norms are her norms, but she's clearly very sharp, very aware of like everyone around her and the buttons to press and the the way to sort of nudge people in the right direction. And she's also hilarious. Like they're one of the best scenes in the movie is where Izzy goes to pick up her grandmother from what is apparently a Bubby self-defense class. And it's just, <laughs> <That was awesome. laughs> just like 20 Jewish elderly women in a self-defense class in, uh, in the, on the Lower East Side. Yeah, I thought that she was fantastic because she, the movie isn't making fun of her. It, it takes her sort of goofy sense of norms seriously and her, takes her stories seriously. And by the way, as an aside, my feeling was that the matchmaker is just like a good friend of Bubby's who went like, you know, you got to let me set up your granddaughter. I have the best guy. You know, not so much that she was like, I have engaged a matchmaker. Here's the contract. So I don't think it's quite as over the top to apply it here. Also, total side point, I got the sense that it's possible that the pickle man goes to shul every morning because his father seems to have died recently. It's possible that he's saying Kaddish. But anyway, that's an aside. The, the movie does not engage with that question in any explicit yeah, way. Yeah. I actually thought the the real butt of the joke um, character is the matchmaker, um, Mrs. Yeah. Mandelbaum, um, who's played by Sylvia Miles. And you see her as sort of this grotesque, sort of cringingly... Um, I think cringingly Jewish or brutish in some way, you know, she eats with her fingers. She's always carrying around like a big stack of cards and coupons, I think. And there's something very boorish about her. Played well, though. But Bubby calls her out on it, right? That, yeah. You know, right. you know, Bubby's like, and in this sort of moment of quite dark humor, you find out that Mrs. Mandelbaum has a husband who apparently uh, committed suicide a while back, and she insinuates that it might be because he had to sit next to her at the dinner table mm-hmm. with her horrible table manners for however many years. It was that was that was a bit of a cringe moment, and like a what just happened? I don't know what just happened, but she may be a stereotype, but she's not indicative of her entire demographic. Right? Yeah. 
I also thought that there's something about, you know, this snapshot of 1980s Jewish New York that I really appreciated, you know, just the the living Jewish community in the Lower East Side is not really something that I ever got to experience. I only lived in New York City for one year, um, but I actually more associated that sort of like Yiddish signs, Jewish culture, Jews with Brooklyn. And so you get to see like the Lower East Side and the Upper West Side as these two Jewish cosmos, but in a way that, I don't know, just in a very like time capsule portrayal that I appreciated. Yeah, I guess... I think maybe I didn't appreciate it because I was like, was that even still around in the 80s? Mm. But maybe it was. I don't, I, I certainly have no expertise. Okay, but the thing that was interesting to, to me is I don't feel like this movie has anything really interesting to say about Jewish women, but it does seem to have something kind of interesting to say about Jewish men because the love interest is this, like, is is a he he runs a pickle shop which he inherited from his dad and he is like very he's like he is like a time capsule person like he lives in the lower east side of like 1915 and she lives in 1988 and she initially like the tension of the movie is basically she's initially like I am a like I am interested in like arts and literature. I'm not going to end up with a pickle guy, but then like the pickle guy is really nice and like the writer is actually a jerk and it's like of course she should be with the pickle guy. That's so cute. But I'm just like what does this movie think about Jewish the the writer guy's not supposed to be Jewish as far as I can tell. So like what does this say about Jewish men? And like also I just like I, one thing that I liked about this movie is that the male lead is, like, not particularly hot. Right. <laughs> like, he does look like all of the Jewish men that I was friends with when I lived um, in New York. And I was like, oh, it does, like, that does square with, like, the the dudes that I knew and dated. But I don't know. I think that's, like, a more... and And he, like his character in a way has more depth. Like there's a really long scene where he is hanging out with the Bubby and he is like prepared. He has done all of this um, like preparation for this evening that he thinks he's going to spend with this woman that he's dating. And he ends up spending most of the evening with the Bubby and he like has all these conversations with her and he gets her drunk, not in a gross way. And, (laughs) and it's just like, it's funny and interesting and you learn about him and it's like, I don't know. I I don't object to any of that, but I was kind of bummed because this was a movie that I had just been part of a conversation about how, like, there's basically no stories that center Jewish women from the last 30 years that are not Orthodox or about the Holocaust. And so people were like, okay, what, what doesn't fit that, basically? And it was, like, transparent and... Can you think of anything else? (laughs) It's really hard. There's just not a lot out there that is not both of those things. And your argument is that Crossing Delancey also does not center Jewish women. Well, it does, but it doesn't actually have anything interesting to say. Mm. Like, so everyone in this conversation, so my friend Flo Lo um, is a, like, 
Jewish artist and filmmaker, and she lives in D.C., and she posted on Facebook about how she was helping somebody prepare for a bat mitzvah, and the person wanted to look at stories from, like, the last 20 years that were about Jewish women or uh, Black or Indigenous people of color, women, uh, Jews, and that they, and that didn't center orthodoxy or the Holocaust. And what was there? And, like, hundreds of people are, like, trying to think of something, and there's, like, almost nothing on this list. And she was like, movies, TV, books. I could think of a few books, but very little. And everybody kept saying Crossing Delancey, which she was like, that is actually outside the parameters of this. It's over 30 years old. But also now that I, it made me really want to watch it. So I was really excited that we were about to watch it. And then I watched it and I was like, I mean, it's fine. Like, I guess technically it does fulfill the criteria that she came up with. This is not a character who engages with her Judaism in any way. She knows a lot of Jewish people who do Jewish things around her, but you never see her, like she attends a bris, but like she doesn't have anything to say about it. And again, it's like, I don't need her to like, you know, be davening all the time or like, learning Gamara, but I just, I didn't feel like, it, it was weird to me that this is like held up as like a paradigm of like a Jewish woman's story. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, well, I, I think that, I think in some ways the paradigmatic nature or the reason that we hold it up is precisely what this Guardian article that Zahava pointed us to by Hadley Freeman points out that I think at least like Annie Hall was cemented in my thinking as like, this is a paradigmatic story of Jewish men. And what Hadley Freeman points out, as many others have, is that Woody Allen character is saved by a non-Jewish woman. Or he thinks he's saved or he wants to be saved, whatever. Um, so this is like the Jewish, the neurotic Jewish man gets saved by a non-Jewish woman. And this story is... The Jewish woman doesn't need to be saved by a non-Jew. They're the neurotic Jewish pickle man, he's not really that neurotic, and he doesn't need to be saved by a non-Jew. We can save ourselves. We can we can combat loneliness in the modern era without abandoning Jewish Jewish culture. Maybe it doesn't say anything about Jewish religion, but we don't have to abandon it. Um, that's the special. That's what's so rare. Yeah, I think that is correct. I, I I have seen Annie Hall once, but it was like a million years ago, and I'm definitely not in the headspace of watching Woody Allen movies. So um, uh, I will take your word for it. But I, I guess like for me, it's like, that's not enough. Just like staying Jewish is not like much of a Jewish story to me. But I also like, whatever, I, I am a very... I recognize that other people have very different feelings about their Judaism than I do. And like, it, it may be meaningful to others. I just was kind of like, I had a like, is that all there is moment at the end of this movie? I get that because I do think that the exploration that the characters are are doing here is a lot less explicitly framed as being about their Jewishness and more about anything that smacks of traditionalism and old worldness, inherently unsophisticated. Like, it's more about whether 
staying near, as in in the neighborhood of physically near your sort of immigrant roots and the professions of your grandparents and, you know, being more thoroughly surrounded by a culture that you come from, is that inherently somehow unsophisticated or lower class. It's really more about Izzy's wanting to be in a more sort of rarefied intellectual circle. Not that her Jewishness is incompatible with that, but that anything that smacks of the old world is incompatible with that. And so it is not possible that your grandmother's friend could actually know a guy for you. And it is not possible that the right guy for you could be somebody who sells pickles instead of books. And so it's really more of a class story and the deal with um, the deal with Sam the male lead is just that he's comfortable balancing those things like we find out actually that he has read the books that he does know the authors right that he doesn't see that as being uh, incompatible with being a guy who sells pickles and there's this like little detail where he, at the end of the day, soaks his hands in vanilla and milk to remove the pickle smell, which the Guardian article picks up on as sort of like vanilla as a symbol of like assimilation or whitewashing and whiteness. But, um, but I think like this, the simple factor is you, you can know, you can maintain a level of class and sophistication and know when it's like not the moment to smell like a pickle <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, and, and still be, and still not be ashamed of where you come from. And so I think it's more about that and her Jewishness is manifest as sort of a, an immigrant culture and a, and is the story of becoming a successful American as the descendant of Jewish immigrants, is that the story of shedding your roots or embracing them? I think it's more that mm. conflict. But all of that is subtext. I like that. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that framing of it. And I do like that a lot. But I will say, like, even that, that's about him, right? Like, that's about her ultimately being, like, seeing what she wants in him. And I just feel like we don't actually see, we see her be like, oh, okay, I want to be with the nice guy. And I like all of the subtext that you just drew out. But to me, it's like deep enough subtext that I was, I was like, this is kind of a movie about how this is nice Jewish guys exist, which is fine. But like, that's not about Jewish women. I'd like to see the 2021 reboot of this film for several reasons. And one is um, a character... Sahava, uh, before we recorded, you were mentioning there's a friend who has a baby. This is the bris that Izzy goes to. And this friend is not married to her son's father. Um, she's like, seems pretty committed to making it as a single mom. She's also maintaining Jewish traditions and her connection to, I think, maybe a great aunt. Um, and I think. You know, that's another interesting story that I would like to hear more about. Yeah, maybe you're an underexplored Jewish woman avenue in the movie is Izzy's circle of high school friends who she still seems close to. So one of whom is this friend who's pursuing single motherhood. Um, And the vibe really just seems to be like, I want this baby. I want this family. I'm not going to wait around for this guy to be ready to you know, stand under a chuppah with me, like, let me just make some progress. And Mm -hmm. she has another friend who's doing the more, um, 
stereotypical bemoaning the lack of available good guys in the city, except good Jewish guys. Like it's a more specific category that she's bemoaning. Um, but they plus Izzy are sort of, and they don't judge Izzy when she asserts that she might be seeing this non-Jewish author. Um, which is another element of it. So they're not criticizing each other's choices, one of whom is clearly seeking a Jewish man, one of whom is actively pursuing a relationship with a non-Jewish man, potentially, who may or may not be a skis, but is definitely not Jewish, and um, and one of whom is plowing ahead as a single mom, and they're all sort of models of Jewish womanhood in the city. I do think that the 2021 version of this movie would spend some more time on that friend group. Yeah. Was it for the podcast? Did we all three watch a movie about uh, Jewish women deciding to be p- parents with that, like, unpartnered? Did you, did you, I watched a movie that was about, like, a, um, three different women who were deciding to be Jewish women who decided to become parents, even though they didn't have partners. One I don't recall this. We must not have watched it for the podcast. <clears throat> okay. Because... Um, I, I will dig up the name of it and put it in the show notes. I think I watched it for something else, but it included, um, a woman who is, I think a rabbi on the Upper West Side and has had two children by herself. And I thought, like, I, I, I thought of that a lot when I was watching this movie because I felt like, oh, that's a good example of a story where I was like, oh yeah, this is... I mean, it, it doesn't really fit any of the, it was like, it's a documentary. It was, it's very explicitly about things, but it was just like, it was a film where I like learned about a woman who is a rabbi about what it's like to be a rabbi and a parent on your own. I don't know. It just, that felt to me so much like fresher and more interesting um, and like denser in a way than this, which like was totally enjoyable. Like I enjoyed watching it. I had a fun time, but also to me, I was very surprised by its kind of lightness, just given how much, how much I've heard about it over time. Like people talk about this movie a lot. So I kind of expected it was going to be, I, I expected to be kind of like bowled over in a bunch of different ways. And maybe that's just sort of evidence of the slim pickings in this category. Yeah. I want to highlight two things before we leave the topic, two things that I loved. One is I loved Izzy's hair. Um, I think maybe one of the things that was special for this film at the time was that she really embraces like her Jewish curls and the wildness of her hair. And the second is just going to get on my soapbox about seniors for a second. Um, And I don't know why I'm getting really choked up, but like her friendship and like true connection with her Bubby is something that we are so missing today, especially during the pandemic when like seniors are just hidden away to protect them. And yeah, it's, I, I just, I loved the way that she was very consistently in her Bubby's life, not just like bringing her groceries, but just hanging out with her. And I think that's something I hope we can do more of soon safely. I certainly would agree that people should watch this movie. And for anybody who is interested in tracking it down, it is available to rent on YouTube. I will say that watching this movie made me really want to watch Hester, which is the 
previous movie by Joan McGlynn Silver. And I would also recommend that people read a little bit about her because I didn't know anything about her. I don't think I'd ever heard her name before, before um, we started researching this segment. And there's a lot of really interesting stories about her and about her work. And also, apparently her last film was a film of the carp in the bathtub. What? Which I must, I know. (laughs) I was like, there's a movie of that? So I'm going to do some research because I would like to see that. So for our second segment, we're going to be talking about Jewish space lasers. So some context. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is known for supporting the QAnon hoax and for some other conspiracy theories. Um, Some recently unearthed social media posts from 2018 of hers show that she wrote about how wildfires in California were started by Rothschild Inc., a reference to a Jewish banking family, who she believes have a space laser. She believes they did this in order to clear land for a high-speed rail project. When people began to write about this theory, there are lots of Jews on the internet who were rushing to make jokes about it, uh, about all the different fun things you could do with the Jewish space laser. I am just curious about how, where you all fall on this. Like, is it funny? Is it scary? Is it both? And like, how do you, how do you feel about what this seems to kind of say about where we are in terms of conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism? So I will start by saying that I did think it was very funny and I appreciated the excellent humor that many people brought to this conversation. Like, I think all conspiracy theories are kind of scary, and that is certainly the case now, more than ever, perhaps. But on the other hand, I also felt like, given the world that we live in, and that conspiracy theories are so much just, like, in the ether right now, like, having one that we all get to, like, really make great jokes about, I was like, all right, I'll take it, like... It's better than another conversation about the elders of Zion. So I'm into it. I mean, when you are on the outside of a conspiracy theory, it almost always sounds ridiculous and absurd, right? It's like, how could anyone believe that a Jewish funded space laser was intentionally used to start the worst wildfire in California history to make room for high speed high speed rail construction, which something about the governor, something about the vice chair of some company or other, something about making money, Jews. That's about all I got on this one. And like, <laughs> it's absurd, right? It's absurd and ridiculous. And, and it would be so much funnier if this person were not a member of Congress. And I think that that's the point is that at the moment, it suddenly feels like the bananas has gone mainstream in a very significant segment of the American polity in a very frightening way. And in general, this feels like it kind of puts a red underline on why it is so hard to talk about modern anti-Semitism. Cause like, how could something this ridiculous be dangerous, you know? Mm-hmm. And, right. and how am I not just whining if I'm, if I'm talking about it seriously, like, come on, it is just so absurd. Like how could, how could anybody take it seriously except this person is a member of Congress. And this sort of feels like it's related to the, like, it seems sort of unseemly to complain about 
anti-Semitism when you occupy a fairly privileged and powerful place in society. It just seems like you're a complainer and like, how could you put your oppression in the same conversation or on the level of people whose lives are under genuine threat more like it's hard to talk about this. It's hard to talk about this. I want to recognize that I am a person who like has a lot of security in society. I have a lot of like influence and privilege and whatever. And I like that is real. And does that mean that I can't worry about this? And how could this be a serious threat when it just sounds so bananas? Like how could, and so it just, it sort of stymies an effort to have a real conversation about the threat of anti-Semitism. I mean, how could this be a real threat? Yeah, she's in Congress, but how do we get from Jewish space lasers to acts of violence, discrimination, or legislation that hurts Jews? I mean, how did the Hillary Clinton is running a secret pedophile ring lead to an actual gunman showing up at an actual pizzeria threatening the real lives of people? This social media post went up like two months after the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh. There's a radical disregard for the effects of these words on real people with large stocks of weaponry at home. Good point. That's the answer. Yeah. You know, my main takeaway from this is colored by an experience I'm having online with an acquaintance who is really wrapped up in conspiracy theories and likes to comment on things and create these really confusing posts um, that like invite people to respond, but then not, she doesn't engage with them. And I'm just, I'm having this very frustrating experience with somebody who says she wants to engage, but is actually so beyond engaging with other people. The conspiracy theory thing is, it strikes me as um, somebody who needs to be deprogrammed, like you have to deprogram somebody after a cult. And I, yeah, I just, I'm so, I feel so helpless and like uh, confused and saddened by what happens to the brains of people on conspiracy theories. I don't know what to do. I recently started listening to an audiobook of a book called Culture Warlords by Warlords by um, Talia Levin, which is about her um, kind of forays into uh, white supremacy online to do some journalism. And I thought it was going to be more about race. And it really was like very heavily about anti-Semitism. She got in um, to a lot of the kind of like dark corners of the internet and like different um, chat apps and um, rooms about for Nazis and white supremacists and discovered that sometimes they were talking literally about her. Like she would be part of conversations where people would talk about like, what would it be like to rape Talia Levin because she was also like a public figure. And a lot of it was really about anti-Semitism a lot more than it seems like was about racism. And she kind of talks about how a lot of the racism in these spaces is rooted in anti-Semitism because there's this idea that like Jews are at the base of racial equality in this country because we want to make ourselves 
seem more white by making black people seem more black. I mean, I don't obviously follow the logic totally, but uh, it like, first of all, it was very intense. I thought it was going to be like an interesting thing to listen to. And I was like listening to it while I was doing stuff around the house. And I was like, I can't do this anymore because it was really intense. And I was like, I need to read this in paper and not have it come into my ears when I'm trying to like walk the dog. Um, But also I just felt like, it just went much deeper into things than I was totally aware of. Um, and that was very upsetting. And she talks about how upsetting it was to like experience it and do this kind of undercover reporting. But I also just felt like, I do think there's like a balance of like how much this stuff gets kind of like written about and taken seriously. Like it does seem like that almost ends up amplifying it. And I'm not convinced that it seems, I don't know. It just feels like very sticky because it feels like there's this sense of like, we can't let this pass. Like we have to call this out everywhere it is. But like when we call it out, it's like everyone can hear us and the people who are inclined to believe these things can fall into that trap then. And we've just amplified it. Um, And the other piece of this that I think is salient is that like a lot of, I think the anti-Semitic tropes that are, more commonly found now, like things about George Soros, this thing about the Rothschilds, are things where it's like, uh, it is not explicitly anti-Semitic. Like you have to know that this is kind of a dog whistle, which a lot of people do, but also a lot of people don't. And I was reading some other article recently about someone whose father had started espousing a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and he was Jewish. But, like, he didn't know that this stuff is kind of rooted in anti-Semitism. And he just, like, watches Fox News and it just, like, struck a chord with him and he went with it. And his kid was like, how can you be saying this stuff? Like, do you know what this means? But, like, he didn't. So, I don't know. For me, that is part of what is really scary about this stuff is, like, it's about the Jews but not explicitly about the Jews. So it's actually harder to like undo. And that's actually what I appreciated about the kind of like Twitter jokes about the Jewish space laser is like, nobody was calling it the Rothschild space laser, even though that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene did. Like everybody understood that what she meant when she said that was Jewish. And so that's what people called out. And it felt less harmful to me because it was A, like people saying the quiet part out loud and B, people making a joke out of it, which felt actually like a kind of constructive approach to something that is like at its core, obviously very upsetting. Right. Because the jokes are directed at the third party audience. Like there is no point in engaging with the person espousing this on a substantive level. Obviously. Yeah. And, you know, and some of this is because you really do need to be super deep into this. Like some of this to me is just making me feel like I actually don't know enough about the history of anti-Semitism. Like, I think that my Jewish education on this stuff is that the history of anti-Semitism is a list of places where Jews were killed. Like the history of anti-Semitism is a history of pogroms and genocides and, you know, 
uh, forced assimilation attempts and et cetera. Um, it wasn't so much about theory and propaganda. And I feel like there are holes in my education there. And Mimi, like you're saying, when people post conspiracy theories, they're heavily involved, like they're highly detailed. The people who are in this quote unquote know a lot about them. What this reminded me of was I recently read Ezra Klein's recent book, Why We're Polarized. Um, and he, as an aside, said, have you ever tried to argue with a 9-11 truther? They know a ton about the melting points of steel. Like, you need to go down a rabbit hole to engage with something. And if, if you know from the beginning that it's ridiculous, you, you just don't take it seriously enough to engage with all of the bits and pieces that, you know, all of the pieces of string on the corkboard. And so clearly you couldn't possibly understand because you just don't know. You haven't even tried to understand the truth here. Right. And so the, the only the only thing to do really is try to convey to a third party audience who has heard the one sentence version of it, that it is like wrong and ridiculous at the same time. What's scary to me is just that, like, nobody really knows anything about the full range of issues about which they have to have an opinion to be a member of like engaged citizenry. You delegate your knowledge of things to people that you trust. You vote for somebody not because you understand in great detail their position on the earned income tax credit, but because you know a couple of key things about their stances and that makes you trust them. And that makes you trust their sort of full suite of knowledge and positions. You have a couple of signifiers that you rely on. There's a lot of people who voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Not because of this necessarily, but like not, a lot of those people don't know any Jews and they have sort of delegated their understanding of some issues to this quote unquote more informed person in a position of authority. That's, I guess, Mimi, what's scary, not just about her espousing something absurd, but her doing it from this position of relative power. It's not that I think she's going to like pass the Jewish Space Laser Condemnation Act of 2021, but because anyone in that kind of position has been delegated a certain amount of authority to define the right way to think about certain things. Right. And to mobilize their followers. Yeah. Do you think it matters at all? Like, one of the things that I found most confusing about this particular conspiracy theory is it was like at its very bottom a better rail system in California I was like I do want that <laughs> <laughs> like I was like the thing that it claims is like the core reason behind all of this I'm like yes please can we have that I don't want to do it with space lasers or forest fires forest fires definitely bad space lasers Jewish space lasers non-existent but like I, sometimes I think that like a, a weird and hard part of dealing with these conspiracy theories is it's like the part that that some people think is bad I think is good so it's like you know like George Soros is giving all this money to progressive candidates and I'm like uh-huh <laughs> and I like it <laughs> um like it's like it's not you know that doesn't bother me or it's like I mean, yeah, I just feel like sometimes I get kind of there's there's something particularly because a lot of anti-Semitic um, tropes are really about how like Jews are evil geniuses. I have trouble sometimes where I'm like, 
well, I'm not going to say that's not true. <laughs> Where I'm like, there's, you know, like with any conspiracy theory, I guess, like there's pieces of it that just happen to be true or true-ish or like not even bad, but just like when they're like grouped with all of the other ridiculousness, it's, it's bad news. Um, but I did, I found that to be like kind of a weird part of this where I was like, when you keep unpeeling the onion and then on the inside, I was like, wait, but this is not a bad thing. Um, I just felt, felt awkward about that. I mean, there are a lot of Jews in finance, like, and, you know, <laughs> right. and like these, these, um, you know, conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the financial system go back to some real historical factors that funnel Jews into money lending or, you know, the financial industry. I mean, yeah, like you only need one tether to reality, I think, is is the core of, of a conspiracy theory world. I mean, Tamar, your, your question about whether calling this out just serves to amplify it is an interesting question. There's been a lot of conversation in parallel about generally how should social media networks deal with disinformation on the internet about important matters of public interest. There's been some debate as to whether if you kick these things off of Facebook, they just sort of wind up on whatever the most recent incarnation of 8chan is. Like if you shut down Parler, they wind up on. And so, you know, funneling these things into ever more unregulated corners of the internet is like really helpful. But at the end of the day, like fewer people are going to encounter them in those places, right? You're, you're, you know, the article you mentioned earlier where, where the, where the Jewish father like sort of encountered things with anti-Semitic roots on Fox News, like he wasn't going to go like seek them out in the Q chat rooms. Um, things need to exist in the mainstream to go wide. I mean, it's, it's still, you can have enough people in a Q chat room to storm the Capitol. I'm not saying it's undangerous, but as long as the wider society can overwhelmingly recognize it as dangerous, you're in a much less precarious position than if, you know, your Aunt Ruthie can accidentally share this very interesting sounding story on Facebook. <laughs> but what about the memes? There were so many <laughs> There were some memes. really good memes. Don't take those. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll give you I'll give the memes if the theories could die. Very generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> My favorites were like, how could we possibly keep this secret? What Jewish mother would not be bragging about their son who worked on the space laser? Like, come on. <laughs> There's just memes have brought me a lot of joy over the past couple of months. And I'm trying not to look, look that gift horse too hard in the mouth because sometimes you just got to take take it where you can get it so but I think that there is like a lot of interesting thinking still to be done about like how, what is actually and is not an effective way to talk about these things that's helpful to people in terms of combating misinformation and also in terms of like Jews like being in their feelings about the fact that there's a lot of like anti-semitism in the news now like those are both things that um, that I think we are all still kind of working through. And like, you certainly see similar things, I think, happen um, in the black community around racism. So it's clearly 
you know, people have different coping mechanisms. I'll also just put out a request for, you know, I think there's like the big picture systems and the social media platforming. Um, but then I am still struggling with like, do I continue to let this person fill my newsfeed with conspiracy theories because I want to know what is going on or do I lower my blood pressure and block? Do I engage so that others know that I think this is ridiculous? And, you know, I think there are a lot of like personal action or disengagement questions that I'm, I'm grappling with right now. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have any answers, but I just put a book on hold at the library that's supposedly going to help me solve this problem. So I'll let you know if it works. Mimi, what do you have to endorse? So my endorsement um, is kind of connected to conspiracy theories. Um, I have been watching a really excellent TV show called Babylon Berlin, which you can find on Netflix. It's a German show that takes place in the 1920s Weimar Republic between the wars in Berlin. And the reason I say it's connected to conspiracy theories is that it's sort of a noir crime um, detective show, but it is, there is this unraveling that's happening. I'm in season three. We're getting like strings about um, soldiers who came back from World War One with a lot of PTSD. There's National Socialism, the Nazis, there's actual like Bolsheviks and Soviet communism. There are a lot of like strings that this one detective is trying to make sense of. And you are, I am getting like these big theories that explain it all. Um, it's just really satisfying. And the fact that it's not related to my everyday life is very wonderful. Um, I'll also say that one of the things that brings me a lot of joy about this show, one of the reasons I want to recommend it, is there's just really fun costuming and dancing, sort of cabaret style um, song and dance. So highly recommend the TV show Babylon Berlin on Netflix. That sounds awesome. Mm. Yeah. It's great. Um, Zahava, what do you have to recommend? So I am going to recommend a book, a memoir by Mara B. Gad, um, who is mostly a film and television producer. But so the, the memoir is called The Color of Love, a story of a mixed race Jewish girl. So Mara is um, biracial, born Jewish and then adopted by a white Jewish family. And so it's about her experience growing up in that family and in that community and uh, some of the racism and objectification she experiences within the Jewish community, but also the sort of embracing and very fiercely protective immediate family um, that chose her. And then the real focusing event of the book um, is that an openly racist great aunt of hers um, who is now in the throes of dementia and in need of a lot of support um, has been sort of taken into um, guardianship by the state of California. This great aunt and her fifth husband um, 
are not in a position to take care of themselves. They don't have any children of their own. And the state of California sort of takes over their care in a way that the family, when they find out about it, know would not be to their liking. And so they're trying to figure out they've they've cut this person off a long time ago because of her open racism towards Mara. And as they've had to do with some, with a number of family members who've been racist towards their daughter. And they're trying to figure out what responsibility, if any, they bear towards this, um, towards this family member now that she is uh, no longer of sound mind and in need of help. And Mara essentially volunteers to take on a lot of the responsibility of coordinating and transferring her care and bringing her more geographically close to the rest of the family and figuring things out. And, and the experience of, of being a person of color with a quite racist white elderly relative depending on you and what that experience has been like. Um, it's a really interesting story. Um, not, uh, it's actually a fairly quick read. The, the writing style is very accessible. It, it doesn't feel super heavy, um, but it feels like a very, very open window into her life and feelings. It's, it's very, uh, it's a very sort of direct line into her thinking. It's, you know, a first person memoir and, and she's very open and honest about it. And, um, you get a really powerful sense of the people in her life. And I just thought it was a really fascinating kind of storyline through which to understand how she's navigating her place in, in different communities and different identities. So I totally recommend it. Mara B. Gad's The Color of Love, a story of a mixed race Jewish girl. It came out in 2019 um, and uh, won a few awards along the way, but probably isn't as widely known as it could be. Hmm. That sounds, sounds great. Yeah, I totally want to read that. Um, I also have a book recommendation. Um, I want to recommend a book called Crossing California by Adam Langer. And um, it is, uh, so I read it 15 years ago now, and it is set in uh, West Rogers Park, which is where I grew up. California is this avenue that goes through the neighborhood and kind of separates the different, well, it, the book is about like, uh, a girl and her kind of view of the neighborhood and what crossing California um, kind of symbolizes to her. Like there are characters who go to the high school I went to, like she walks down the block that I grew up on and talks about it in the book. So it is like, for me, it was an incredibly intense reading experience and I loved it. And I knew that it was related in some way to crossing Delancey. I honestly could not tell you what the connection is at this point, because I haven't read Crossing California in 15 years and Crossing Delancey doesn't, it doesn't, like, I'm not like, the the uh, similarities are not super obvious to me at this particular distance, but um, I know that Adam Langer was very much inspired by Crossing Delancey. And if you like Crossing Delancey and you're looking for stories of, um, Jewish women very much like wrestling with their Jewish lives. Um, Crossing California is a great example of that. In it's Google fiction. Uh, and I also just found it like it's fiction and it's just super readable. Like I have a very vivid memory of, I was reading it on the tube in London and I was like, well, if I stop reading now, I should stop reading now because the next stop is my stop. But then I was like, eh, I'll just miss my stop and keep reading because <laughs> I, <laughs> I was 
that into it. So um, that is quite an endorsement. I recommend it. Um, yeah. So that is my endorsement for, for the month. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you could also email us to tell us what you'd like us to discuss on future episodes. We're always looking for ideas. Um, you can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page um, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking in Shul from the list of podcasts. You should also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and ensure that we're able to bring you new episodes. Thank you so much to Daniel Lena for editing us today. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you, Sahava. Thank you both. We'll see you next month.